preaching on the end times, not one of my favorite subjects, but as we were planning for the year, you know, we started thinking, this has been such a strange year that um, maybe we need to address it. Because, you know, whenever, throughout history, whenever times get tough, uh, people start asking, is this it? Is this the end times? And, and maybe you've been wondering this uh, as well. Well, disciples were asking the same question. In, in, in Matthew 24, uh, Jesus and his disciples are at the temple. And um, the, the temple was, was built by King Herod. It actually had been first rebuilt in 516 B.C. Uh, after the Jewish people came back after the Babylonian exile. But uh, in the first century B.C., Herod uh, began to rebuild the temple, plus he, he greatly enlarged the area around the temple. It was one of the most magnificent uh, buildings, structures in the first century, in the ancient times. The whole thing lasted, the whole building project lasted for years, decades. And in verse 1, the disciples are admiring the temple. And they were, you know, Jesus, look in this beautiful, look at the incredible stonework here. This is, this is so gorgeous, so much gold and silver. And, and, and Jesus says something that absolutely rocked their world. He said, see all of this? Not one stone will be left on another. He said, every one of these stones will be thrown down. Now, you have to remember, the temple was the center of their political and religious life. It was the very heart of the capital city, Jerusalem. So this is cataclysmic. Jesus is announcing that your whole world is about ready to come tumbling down. And so they walk out of the city, they walk up the hill, the Mount of Olives, which uh, has a beautiful view of the temple area and the city, and uh, the crowds leave, they have some private time with Jesus, and they ask him this question, tell us, when will this be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so Jesus begins to name some signs that they look for. Deception, wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes. Disciples will be arrested, abused, hated, put to death. There'll be apostasy and false prophets. And yet he said the gospel will be preached to all the nations. And then he says the end will come. So in verses 15 through 25, Jesus, Jesus specifically refers to the immediate future. The destruction of the temple. 70 A.D., when the Roman general Titus um, uh, besieged the city, broke down through the city walls, massacred uh, most of the population, and, and burned the city, including the temple. And this is what Jesus said. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand and then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. And pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. And then in verses 26 and following, Jesus talks about his second coming. And what he says is this. It will be unmistakable. Verse 30. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn 
when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. And then in verse 34, Jesus answers the first question of when the temple will be destroyed. He says this, Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things have happened. In other words, the destruction of the temple is going to happen in your lifetime, in this generation. And sure enough, 40 years later, it does. And then he answers the second question of when he is going to return. He says that, this, but of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Life will go on as usual. People will be doing all their daily activities. They'll be eating and drinking and getting married and, and working in the fields. And then it will come. But, he says, you do not know when. Now, that doesn't stop us from trying to figure it out, does it? Despite Jesus' warning, every generation has had people trying to guess when the end will come. In the second century, there was a guy named Montanus who was convinced the end was coming. He developed a large following, and people stopped caring for their flocks. They stopped planting their fields. And, and, and then when it didn't happen, well, they went ahead and formed a church, which lasted until about the 9th century A.D., in the year 999, a, a large group of people thought that when the calendar flipped over to, to 1,000, that that would be a new millennium, and the end would come. People traveled from all over to Rome to celebrate what they thought was going to be the, the, the last mass with uh, Pope S uh, Sylvester II. People sold their possessions, they quit working, and, and they confessed their most horrible secrets to each other because they were convinced that on New Year's Eve, it was all going to come down. It was all going all to happen. Imagine to their horror on New Year's Day when they were still there, and they had just told all their darkest secrets to their neighbors, <laughs> whom now they're going to have to live with for a while. In the 1840s, a man named William Miller developed a huge following, insisting that the end of the world was near. And again, there was embarrassment and disillusionment when it didn't happen. And so they formed what was called today the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And even today, there are people who, who make predictions, uh, people who write books and who appear on TV um, and at conferences talking about how current events that they believe signal the end of the world. But here's the truth. Everyone who has tried to predict the end of the world has been wrong. 100% <laughs> failure rate. <laughs> we just don't know when. The end is coming, Jesus says, but we don't know when. He was very clear on that, that it will be a surprise. Now, one area of eschatology that has generated different points of view is the millennial. And this refers to the 1,000-year reign of, uh, of Christ mentioned uh, by John in Revelation chapter 20. But we also see glimpses of this millennial reign of Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, we see it in the prophet Isaiah in chapter 11 when he said that there will be a, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. You remember Jesse was the father of, of David, King David. 
And he will usher in this age where the, the wolf will lie down with the lamb and, and the leopard will lie down with the goat and the calf and the lion and a young child uh, will, will lead them. For all the earth, he says, will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And then we have that a passage from, from Micah chapter 4 where he says, they'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So the, for the first 350 years or so, the dominant view was that Christ would return and then we would usher in this 1,000-year this reign of Christ. And that was called pre-millennialism. But once Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire and Christians were no longer being put to death in the Colosseum, people began to think, you know what? Uh, things are beginning to look pretty good. Um, it feels like Christianity has won the hearts of everyone. Maybe there is no literal, actual 1,000-year reign. Maybe what the Bible meant was that Christ would rule in the human heart and in those who, those who have died and gone on to heaven. And this became known as amillennialism. And this was the dominant view in the church until about the 1600s. And people begin to think about Jesus' uh, words in Matthew 24, verse 14, in which he said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world, and then the end will come. And so they begin to speculate. Maybe the thousand years comes first, and then Christ returns. And this became known as post-millennialism. Are you keeping track? Okay, there's, there's three so far, if you're writing, if you're taking notes. And the millennial would be ushered in as the gospel thread, or, or, or began to spread throughout the entire world. That is, that life would get better and, and better, and then Christ would return. It was this view um, in which Charles and John Wesley uh, lived when they began the, the great Methodist revival. In fact, it was this view that inspired the first and, and second great awakening. These were revivals that, that spread across Great Britain and, and the United States and, and Europe. And it led to so much social reform in the, in the 19th century. Uh, women's suffrage, uh, child labor laws, abolition, uh, prison reform, temperance movement. These were all driven by, by these revivals that, that broke out and they were almost they were almost entirely led by church women. <laughs> Throughout the centuries, women have been a leading force in bringing about social change in our world because they thought the sooner that we get the gospel preached, the sooner that we improve the world, the sooner that Jesus will come back. Now, Wesley himself didn't have uh, a lot to say about the end times. At times, he seemed to be premillennial, and other times, he seemed to be postmillennial. And so Methodism never took a real definitive position. We never said, this is the way you have to believe. We, we allow people to kind of figure out their own ideas on this. So you can be a Methodist and hold to all three of those, of those views. Now, in the 1800s, uh, another view became popular. An Anglican priest by the name of, uh, of John Darby uh, became so disenchanted with the established church that he just resigned. He just up and quit. And he formed a new church called the Plymouth Brethren. 
And he believed that the church and the world would get worse and worse and worse and, and the people would leave the church and, and they would give up their faith in Christ. And then, he said, Christ would return. And he looked at the Bible and, and he saw in the Bible what he called seven dispensations or seven periods of history in which he saw God working in different ways in the earth. And when he looked at Matthew uh, 24, where two men or two women are working, and suddenly one of them is gone. And when he looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul says we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds, he surmised that instead of just one second coming, that there were actually two second comings. And the first second coming, he, he, he called uh, the rapture in which Jesus would come only part way. He wouldn't come all the way to earth. He'd come part way, and then all of the Christians would be snatched up to heaven with him. They would go away. There would be uh, seven years of, of tribulation, and then he would come again. This time he would be public, and he would come with the saints. The first time for the saints. The second time with the saints. This new idea became known as Dispensational premillennialism. Okay? Try saying that rapidly. In 1909, a study Bible called the Schofield Reference Bible was published and it popularized Darby's views. And they became very popular. In fact, when I, when I was a brand new Christian back in, in the 70s and, and still in college, one of the very first books I ever read was called The Late Great Planet Earth. Now, most of you are probably uh, too young to remember that book. Any, anybody read that? hundred years ago, okay, I'm the only one. That's the way it was in the 930 service as well. Anyhow, Lindsay's book sold, listen, Lindsay's book sold 28 million copies. That was one of the, was one of the most best-selling books in the 70s. And he popularized this idea of dispensational premillennialism. And, and then in the, in the 90s, we, there were 16 novels published called the Left Behind series. Uh, probably a lot more of you uh, read those books. They were also very popular in the United States. Now, I'm always a little skeptical when someone comes up with a new doctrine that they say they discovered in, in the Bible. Now, just because something is new doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. I mean, it's very possible that the church missed that the first 1,800 years of its, of its existence. And I think that the classic view of premillennialism, that, that Christ returns uh, followed by a thousand-year reign of Christ, seems to fit with the teaching of Scripture. But where I disagree uh, is that you can force human history into seven different segments, seven different dispensations. I just don't see it in there. And I think that if you read the Scriptures, the scriptures about the second coming, it's clear that Jesus and Paul are speaking of just one coming not a, a secret return called the rapture and then another one of the second coming that is public. And I think that attempts to look at current events and then try to fix a date for Jesus' return, well, they've always been wrong. They just have, 100%. So what do we do? Do we just ignore the teachings of the Bible on the end times? Do we treat it as though it really doesn't matter to us? See, here's the truth, folks. We are in the end times. We are. We have been the last 2,000 years. 
Ever since Jesus came, we have been in the end times. The church has always looked for Christ's return, and that's how we need to live each and every day. Jesus made that clear in verse 44. He says, so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. After he said these words, he told three powerful parables. We call them the ten virgins, the, the parable of the talents, and, and, the, and the parable of the sheep and the goats. And each of these parables, Jesus drives home the idea that that future expectation should always lead to preparation. Today, let's take a look at the, the parable of the ten virgins and see what we discover for living our own lives. Now, Jesus sets this parable within the custom of a first century Palestinian Jewish wedding. And it, what was very traditional was the bride and her bridesmaids would wait at her parents' house for the groom. And, and when he came, they would start a wedding procession, usually at night, uh, to the groom's house. Hence the need for, for lamps. And so when the groom arrived, the ladies would go in procession with singing and, and dancing to the groom's house. And they would join in a banquet that had already been going on all day. Well, in the parable, the arrival of the groom is delayed. Maybe the parents were still negotiating the, the final price. And all ten of the bridesmaids, they fall asleep. Until finally at midnight, they are awakened when an announcement is made that the groom is almost there, that he is on his way. And, and five of the bridesmaids, they've come prepared by bringing extra oil for their lamps. And Jesus calls them wise. But five of the uh, bridesmaids did not bring any extra, and their lamps go out, and Jesus calls them foolish. And when the five go out to buy more oil, the groom arrives, finds, uh, and the wedding party, they leave for the groom's house, and when the five who are unprepared, who didn't buy extra oil, finally arrive, they find the door is shut. And Jesus ends the parable with a warning. He says, therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the hour or the day. You begin to see a theme running throughout here? Now, I can imagine what it was like for those five bridesmaids who forgot their oil. I mean, I can just see them running late, right? Because they overslept, first of all. And then secondly, it took them a long time to get their hair done and get their makeup on. This was a big day, a big wedding day. They wanted to look nice. And they, got out the, they ran out the door. They got in their car. They realized they forgot their car keys. So they had to run back into the house and get their car keys. And they're halfway to the bride's house. And they were, oh, my gosh, we forgot extra oil. Well, you know, what are we going to do? Does that sound familiar? Anybody live in a house like that? You know, there's, there's two kinds of people, don't you think? Those who are always prepared and those who are never prepared. How, how would you rate yourself? Are you one of those people, you know, like the night before you get ready to go to school or you get ready to go to work, you've got your briefcase there, you get all your pencils sharp. Do, we, do they still use pencils? I think so. They had all their pencils sharpened, their pens, their laptop, their batteries are all charged. They've got extra water bottles. And so when they get up in the morning, everything's ready to go and out they go. They don't forget anything. You go on a trip. Two kinds of people when you go on a trip. 
There's those parents, you know, who make sure they have extra food for the kids. They got games to play in the car. They got all their maps in there. They got all the emergency resources in the trunk. They have their flares and, and their extra tire uh, air, and, and they're all ready to go. And then there's those of us who just wing it. Where do you fall? Are you just winging it? Or are you one of those who are obnoxiously prepared? You, you know who you are. Jesus warns us against just winging it. What have you been putting off? You put a few pounds on during the COVID? You gotten out of your exercise uh, routine? I haven't been back to the gym since August. I am paying for a gym membership that I never go to. And every day I tell myself, today I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to the gym. And every day I fail to do it. I'm just procrastinating. I'm putting it off. I don't want to do it. Uh, maybe you wanted to learn a new skill. Uh, maybe you want to start a new career. Maybe there are, these are big things. Maybe they're little things. Start today. Don't procrastinate. But Jesus is talking more than just getting ourselves into shape, isn't he? Or finding ways to improve ourselves. Jesus is advising us of the dangers of just winging it when it comes to our spiritual life. Jesus is telling us to keep watch. The time is near. There's the sense of, of urgency. You know, whenever Jesus talked about his second coming in the Gospels, it was always with this idea that, 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 that he leaves you and I in charge while he's gone. And that we want to be doing his, his work so that when he comes, when he returns, he'll, he'll find us living our lives well. He talks about being alert and keeping awake. It's not that he, he worries that we're going to defy him, but there's this, op, this chance that we might just drift away into missing our one and only opportunity to do his work while we're here. And so whoever you are and, and whatever you do, however old you are, I want you to know today that your life matters, that you play an important role in the world that Jesus has entrusted you with his house, with his work, that what you do matters. Don't sleep through it. You see, you have this one and only life. You have this one and only chance to grow and to love God and, and to serve others. And, and, and the only life that you have, this is it. This is your one and only life in which you can make a difference. Think of the people that God has put into your life, people that you love. You have this one and, and only life. You have now and to the end of life to, to love them. And some of us, were just drifting in those relationships. Some of you are stirring up conflict, and there's stuff that needs to be resolved. There are apologies that need to be made, and there's forgiveness that needs to be offered in some of our relationships right now. Do it. This is the moment Jesus is coming back. Don't let him find you asleep when he does. Last week, we talked about uh, the importance of investing our lives into someone else. Be a mentor. Be a coach. Invest your resources and care for the under-resourced. We don't, we don't want to be living a, a lifestyle that... that we do want to be living a lifestyle that glorifies God and, and that shows people what Jesus is like. To do that, you cannot be complacent. You cannot put it off. You cannot procrastinate. Now, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. 
It's just this. Your life matters. This is your one and only chance to, to celebrate the goodness of God with exuberant joy and, and, and to speak the truth in love and, and to face problems with unflinching courage. This is your one and only chance. We don't get another one. And so I'm asking you today, are you living life with a sense of urgency? Do you understand that, that you exist because you are created in the mind of God with a purpose? Do you know that we need to pray, we need to worship, we need to serve and, and love and work with every fiber of our being until Jesus comes back? What about your devotional life? What are you putting off? What if you got up just a little bit earlier, earlier in the morning so you could spend time with God in prayer and in Scripture? Maybe you've been putting off joining a small group. Maybe you've been putting off doing an in-depth Bible study. Don't delay. Don't procrastinate. Start it today. You see, the truth is the, the, the five wise ones, they just did a very small little thing. Just one small little thing. They didn't forget their oil. They just remembered to bring a, a little extra supply. That's all they did and let what a huge difference it made in their lives. See, I think for, for some of us here today, we need to start doing now what you need to do, and you'll find you'll be happier later on when you do it. Years ago, my wife and I uh, had lunch with uh, Reg and Tiffany Brown. Uh, at that time, uh, we lived in Columbus, and, and Reg was the vice, senior vice president for uh, strategy and development for nationwide insurance. And I told him uh, how hard it was for me to, to find a time to do strategic planning for the church, and, and how did he do that? And he gave me a really simple answer. It was so simple that I just totally missed it. He said, Mark, you got to put it on your weekly schedule. And I went home and I did that. Every Friday morning, that's the time for me to think strategically. That's the time for me to think about where God wants to lead our church into the future. I've done it ever since. Organizing around your mission. How much time are you giving each week to, make, to making your calling become a reality? Organize your time around it to make it come true. See, it's about discipline. Now, the root word of, of discipline is, is disciple. And to be a disciple is to be a follower of some things or someone. And, and years ago, E.M. Gray wrote an essay entitled The Common Denominator of Success. He spent his entire career looking for the one thing that all successful people share. And, and he found that hard work was important, that luck was important, that human relationships were important. But he, but he said that what he discovered, the most important thing that he discovered was this, and it's learning to put first things first. That the successful person has a habit of doing the things the rest of us don't want to do. They don't like to do them either. But they have the discipline to put it on their calendar. They have the discipline to do something when they don't want to do it. You see, the temptation is always there to focus on the unimportant things, to focus on the wrong things, to put things off, to, to refuse to do the little things that will pay off big for us in the future. Stop procrastinating. Do it today. 
It's so easy to get distracted in this world. There's so many things. Sometimes we just need to turn off the TV. Sometimes we just need to turn off our cell phones. Because, folks, Jesus is coming back. And we want to be ready when he comes. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, over and over again, you told us that we're not going to know the day or the time or the hour. But you have told us that we need to watch, that we need to be ready, that we need to act and live and love each and every day as though you're coming back tomorrow. And so we pray for that. We pray the Holy Spirit will give us a good dose of discipline. We'll do those things, God, that we know we need to do. Help us to stop procrastinating. Help us to stop putting those things off. Help us, God, to embrace and do those things that we know that you call us to do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.